The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Learn how you can support at secondlinearts.org. We're creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. Hey, hey! Man, Jeanette, it's good to see you, and um, I'm happy to be here. And tonight we got a very special guest in yes, the house. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah. sir. One of the one of our uh, I'm gonna say he he is a master of jazz, a true master. <laughs> I would agree. And I mean, it's not many people who play with Abby Lincoln and Betty Carter, and I'm pretty sure he played with them simultaneously, which is kind of crazy. And yeah, so, that was tricky. It was a bit <laughs> tricky. <laughs> Everybody, welcome Alvesta Garnett to the Working Artist Project. Hello, everyone. Wow, you got people here, man. Let's get that applause. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, I keep, I keep, I keep them in a little box over here. You know, oh, that's great. Well, at least you got them employed. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, man, I want, I want to get right to the music and and I, that story. I got to hear because how do you work with two titans at the same time? I because I'm pretty sure they both had very strong personalities. I didn't know them, but yes, just just so tell me about that. Well, um, about three months after I graduated, I'm going to go all the way back, you know. Um, (laughs) I was born, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) About three months after I graduated, I get a call in the morning from Betty's manager saying that Betty would want me, wants me to come to New York City to play some gigs. It would be a couple in Brazil and one in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And so I was, of course, extremely you know, excited about this. And I, I remember I was in Richmond, Virginia at my, um, excuse me, <coughs> my allergies are kicking my butt. I just took my clarinet. Give me a second. And so I, w- I was at my girlfriend's apartment at that time when I got the message. I got, I guess I had, a, did I have a cell phone? How did I even have that? How did I know? Maybe my mom called me. I don't know, whatever. And so I, um, I was so excited. I went by my alma mater, which is Virginia Commonwealth University, to tell my professors, it's like, I got the call from Betty. I'm going to be going to New York. You know what I told people when I graduated? I said, oh, what are you going to do now? I'm going to New York. But I had no game plan. I wasn't, I didn't follow the advice as well as I should have from one of our teachers, Mr. Ellis Marcellus, in terms of planning things ahead. But I had played with some folks. I had done the Thelonious Monk competition and Betty had heard me there. And so Ora Harris, her manager, calls me up or, or calls, leaves a message, and I call her back and I communicate, I'm coming. I will be there, of course, you know. So later that evening, after going to VCU and telling them I'm so excited, I get a call from Michael Bowie, Abby Lincoln's bassist, saying that Abby needs a drummer also. And so I'm like, I was like, yeah, okay, you know. He told, and I, I spoke, to, I remember speaking to I guess it was Jim Lewis, Abby's manager. And I knew that the dates, nothing was conflicting. Things were going to be happening literally a week after I played with Betty, I'd be working with Abby. And so I would be in Brazil for two days with Betty, then Ann Arbor. 
I come to New York, my new home, which I didn't even know was going to be, of course, if I wanted to be my new home, I was going to come back to New York for a week and then go to Istanbul with, uh, with Abby. And this is all like before even stepping foot in New York city. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, I took, I took both gigs. Um, I remember Greg Hutchison's advice. He was like, bro, you can't do both. Don't, if you, you, if you do, do not let Betty know. And my attitude was like, well, um, I'm, you know, first off, Betty's was just an audition initially. Okay. So I knew at least I had some clearance in that, that regard. And, um, but flash forward about a month after coming to New York and playing with both of them, you know, week apart, Abby's like right off the jump. She's like, you got the gig. You know, I just remember her at that first rehearsal in her apartment, but after we played something really up tempo, I think it was, um, I got thunder and it rings. And, and she was like, he ain't nothing but the Dickens. <laughs> I never forget that. <laughs> you know, just like it made me so happy. And so I was, you know, on on the road in Europe. This must have been like September, October of '93. And one of the performances was a triple bill with Abby's band, Dee Dee Bridgewater's band, and Betty's All Star Group with Jack Dejanet. And so, mind you, I've already played with Betty those those that first little run. And I'll, I'll remind me to back up and tell you the story about playing tight with her for the first time. But this is now <clears throat> we're on the road and Michael Bube comes to me and he says, hey, bro. So Betty says she's going to go with the kid. You know, and I was like, huh? Yeah, man, she 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 told me she's going to she's going to use you for an extra drummer. And I was like, wow, she didn't say anything to me yet. But I'm like, I was like, I'm like, I'm on the road with Abby. And now I'm hearing this story about. Betty wanted to use me too. So I'm really excited, of course, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm hanging out with Hutch and he's, he's, he's acting a fool too. In the theater, there's, there's other stuff I can't even talk about, but he was hilarious. <laughs> we just, I just had a ball hanging around him. And so, you know, Ab, uh, Abby went first. I remember that much because Abby always wanted to go first. She didn't like to go last because she knew if you go last, then you're at the whims of whoever's in front of you. So she went first. Didi went second and, and every, I mean, everybody was dealing, throwing down. Didi sung her butt off. And I remember sitting in a, and at one point, Betty was standing in a theater. And I was standing next to Betty. And I was like thinking to myself, oh my goodness, she's going so long. She's cutting into Betty's time. And Betty was just like, she's just like, I, I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect, she's just loving it. You know, so you, you could see that Betty was just, you know, rooting for her. I thought that was really beautiful. And then, so after the show, after Michael tells me this, this stuff about Betty, you know, going to choose me, I see Abby too. And she's like, so Vess, I know what you're going to do. Like even, even Abby knew, like somehow it got to Abby and I hadn't even heard it. So I know what you're going to do, Vess. I understand. But mind you, at that time, if you look back, a lot of cats that went into Abby's band came through Betty's band. It's like Betty would form you and shape you. Sorry about the train. I live near the train. You're going to hear, you're going to hear the Susquehanna freight in a second. But, um, <clears throat> and so, you know, there was like, you know, Betty, of course, she's a proving ground, a training ground. She, she, I mean, it's kind of like being in boot camp. you know, she can kick your butt and then rebuild you, you know? And so later on that night, after she had done her performance, you know, Jack Dejanette is there. And I was like, wow, there's Jack Dejanette. I was, and I was kind of shy then. And Jack had, judged me in the Thelonious Monk competition. So he, I think he might've kind of had a, a small glimmer of remembering me, but maybe not because he's, you know, Jack Dejanette. He's heard a ton of great drummers because he is one of the greatest drummers. And so Betty's like, 
so have you heard the news backstage? And I'm, I'm like, uh, I haven't heard anything from you yet. She says, well, give me a call. And I was like, oh, okay. Just why don't you come up to my dress room and meet Jack? I was like, cool, great. You know, so that was Jerry Allen, Jack, and um, and um, who was the bassist? Um, you know who I'm talking. It, it'll come to me. I'm like, oh, Dave, it was Dave Holland, right? Dave Holland. And so it was insane. The band was just ridiculous. And so I go up to the dressing room and Betty's like, um, Jack, I want you to meet my next drummer, Alfester Garnett. And I'm like, she hadn't even said anything to me. That's how fast she was and how confident she was. Because, I mean, she's Betty Carter. It's not many people that turn down Betty Carter. Right. You know, we've, we've heard some stories of people deciding to leave, you know, on their own terms. And I, I dig it. I mean, it's not for everyone. But, um, you know, of course, she knew. She knew I was young. I was green. And I was like, oh, Mr. Ch- Mr. Dejanet, you know. And so then I get back to Europe. I get back from Europe after touring with uh, Abby and Betty calls a rehearsal. Mind you, the first the first gigs that I did with her, that audition little pocket of three gigs, that was with Cyrus Chestnut and Larry Grenadier which was like, I mean, Cyrus was like a hero to me, you know, like just, and Larry was such a great musician. And um, no, I'm sorry, no, it was Cyrus and Chris Thomas, Chris Thomas. And so, you know, those cats, they just had like, they had like this thick, meaty way of playing, you know, and that was like right up my alley because I was like, you know, at that time I was listening to like, you know, Christian McBride and Branford Records, you know, you're in college and you're like, these are like those young lions that you're aspiring to be like, and your list, those are your heroes. And here in Cyrus, I heard that record, that first record with Clarence Penn, who was my former classmate. So I learned a lot from Clarence too. So I'm like, you know, because Ellis was there too. That's another story, but I don't want to digress too much because like we got time to talk. How long is this going to be? Two hours yeah. or what? <laughs> <laughs> let me let me stop because I you can see I can talk. But anyway, so back to my story about um about scoring from the audition band to now the new band is Jackie Terrison and uh, Larry Grenadier and Betty called uh, um a rehearsal and so. At this point, I had talked to Hutch. He heard about it. Clarence knew. And because Clarence, I came in right behind Clarence, basically. And uh, <clears throat> they were like, man, you know, we know you're doing stuff with Abby, too. You know, and I had stuff in the books. And I'm looking at these dates that Aura has handed to me. And I'm like, oh, man, in the future, they don't overlap. I can make this happen. You know, and cats are like, bro, if you do it, don't tell them. Do not tell. Do not tell Betty. And I was like, I started looking at some of the dates and I realized literally they were like a month apart in some of the locations. And one of the locations would be Yoshi's, the, the old Yoshi's over in Oakland. And Ora Harris, Betty's manager, lives in San Francisco. So I knew it wasn't going to, like, if I did both, it wasn't a matter of me just, I mean, I could have just told no one and then I show up and then they see it on the bill. And then Ora goes and reports to Betty of course, because she's the manager. That's what she should do. And so I was like, you know what? I'm brand new. I got an apartment to deal with, you know, rent and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to be honest. You know, okay. I'm, okay. <laughs> you know, I'm going to tell her. I told Aura. And Aura's like, that's fine. Perfectly fine. That's really, that's okay. You know, just, just let us know what you have, you know. And I was like, well, this is going to work. But little did I know. So I go to that first rehearsal now, mind you, with the new band that she's chosen. And I just remember showing up and I was like, hey, ain't nobody here. And it's just Betty, you know, 
she opens up that door and you know she's short she's like about five foot or something and i'm just look i'm looking down and i'm only five seven mind you but still she's looking up at me like you need to choose and i was like oh um uh what do you mean you need to choose what do you want to do and i was like well i want to i want to be with you well you need to choose and I was like, okay, because I, I I never said, you know, I knew what she wanted to hear, you know, and I I didn't say it because I, I wasn't about to do it, man. I, I was like, I maybe I was greedy, maybe I was foolish, you know, you know, wanting to do too much, but I also had bills, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> and she, those days of like retainer, that that those days were long gone. I heard stories about that, but ninety three retainers weren't weren't happening, and so. And I loved working with Abby too. I knew there was to be great things from both of them with different flavors. And I knew that was going to really help me. And um, so I went ahead and, um, you know, I had that first rehearsal with her and everybody, when you come into the band, you generally have like what's called a honeymoon period with Betty and some cats, the honeymoon period never ends. I think people like uh, probably like Hutch, Winard, like all them cats that just like, you know, they just, they, you know what I mean? They just got a vibe about them. Like even some of, some of my other cats that, I mean, I, that I've looked up to, I've heard her, like other drummers have revealed to me. It's like, man, she was tough, you know, or like she would find little things like she would, cause she, she liked to see you develop, I think, as a person too. Other people might not agree, but I, I, I'm a glasses half full kind of person. As tough as it was, I saw it as character building, you know? And so, she uh she just i mean she just when we went on the road she just reamed me left and right i mean it was like it felt i felt like i could hardly do anything right most of the time playing with jackie and uh, and larry but i remember something really powerful one night and we were playing we were playing i think it was in catalina's in la and she could see that it was starting to get to me and you know i'm i'm fairly jovial kind of person and she saw that my i think she saw the light was starting to dim and she said to me, just keep smiling. And I was like, oh, okay. And I, and I did, and it seemed like it kind of relaxed me. You know, I was able to, to flow a bit better. Um, and, and it made me think back when I was in college and I had a chance to study at Clark Terry's Big Bad Jazz Camp. I had, uh, Clark, it's, it's so many things linked here together because when I did the Monk competition, it was because of Clark Terry. And that's where Betty heard me. Like you see, like the community is so huge and so massive. When you when you leave yourself open, if you have the right kind of positive attitude, you will be pulled and drawn into different things. You know, um, when I played with Clark Terry's because my teacher, Scott Taylor, who was teaching at Virginia Commonwealth University at the time, decided that rather than him taking the gig because he was the the big fish in Richmond. He was, a, you know, the educator, fine drummer. He gave the gig to me to play with Clark Terry two nights at a place called Benjamin's. And that's where I met and played with Clark. And he was the one that told me about the Monk competition. I didn't know anything about the Monk competition. I was outside of the New York City scene circle. I Like, not until, I don't even know, when I finally found a village voice on my campus. And I was like, this is what's going on in New York? Flipping through the back. This used to be a, I don't know, you cats, I don't know how old you are, but I don't know if you ever heard about the Village Voice and you could flip to the back of the Village Voice. Maybe Jeanette, okay, I don't want to, I'm not going to talk about anybody's age. But <laughs> I'm from but, New York, so I understand. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mad respect, mad respect. So you know the vibe. And so 
I would, you know, see all these listings and that it was, that was like the most exciting thing. When you come to the, to the city, you look in the back of the village voice and you see, oh my gosh, there's Hank Jones at this one club. You got, you might have Ray Brown over here. There's Ron Carter playing with his band. It's like, oh, there's Mulgrew and he's got Tony Reedus this week, but next week's got Lewis Nash. What? You know, it's like, you know, you're just like, golly. And so I, when, when I played with Clark at, at, Benjamin's in Richmond, he told me about the Monk competition. It was the first Thelonious Monk International Jazz Drums competition, which happened, I think, in 91 or 92. And I auditioned for it and I made it in. And that's that got me really got me to New York because that's where Betty heard me. That's where Curtis Lundy. I saw Curtis Lundy standing backstage and he he told me later on he was the one like she was scoping people out. And I don't I didn't really recall seeing her, but I recall seeing him. And years later, he told me, he said, yeah, man, I. I said, you got to try him, check him out, you know, and, and I, I really appreciate that because when I got the call for, for, um, with Betty, I played a lot with the audience with Betty Carter. So I felt like by the time I got to New York and finally played with Curtis years later, I was like, bro, I already been playing with you for years, man. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and I was, I was just on, on Instagram a few days ago, you know, on a, on a Kenny Washington's Instagram page and, and I was like, he taught, he was like talking, like, I guess about the anniversary or just, you know, honoring Betty Carter and that album, the audience and everybody was chiming in, of course, because that's like a, that's a piece of royalty right there. And so I was like, man, you could calibrate your metronome to that record. <laughs> and I tell students like, that's a great record to play along with all those different vibes and tempos, you know, and that feel and, and Kenny, Kenny's cymbal beat and John Hicks, you know. And so, yeah, so now I'm out on the road and, and Betty is like really tough on me. But I I got to say that, you know, I, I didn't stay there that long because I think she she wanted someone that was going to be there, you know, totally with her. And I still held on, held on to those Abbey gigs. And I'm I think everything happens for a reason. I'm, of course, there's a different training I would have gotten if I had I stayed longer with Betty. But there was a certain essential things that I really got a lot out of. There's a wonderful video that I recorded with her. It's a Lonely House. Kurt Vile's mm. Lonely House. I don't know if you've ever seen. I should have shared that with you guys. But that's a phenomenal, haunting video. Just that song is just because I don't. Do you, do you know that version of Abby Lincoln's Lonely House? You ever heard that version? Mm-mm. I never heard. Yeah. It. No. Oh, it's phenomenal. And it's on the record. It's a ballad, you know. But you hear and Philly Joe is on the on the album playing, mm. and and what you hear the whole time on the side of his floor times, Philly Joe the for a ballad tempo going. Wow. The whole time. And I was like, and I don't know how I got in a conversation with her after, you know, playing with her for a while. And she told me that on that record, see, this is the thing about Abby. She would talk in words that would be very, like kind of almost impressionistic and abstract. Whereas Betty could tell you exactly what to play on your instrument. Whereas Abby would tell you words and phrases and it's up to you to interpret it. And Abby was more about telling you and also what not to play. Whereas Betty could literally tell you exactly what to play. She knew exactly th- certain things. And so she, Abby's talking to me about this. And she said, you know, Lonely House, the story of it. She, she's, she's very deep. And she said, I, she told Philly, said, I want you to play the clock in the empty house. Wow. I knew that's exactly what it was going to. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Wow. Yeah. That is some oh, of the heaviest wow. stuff. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it, you know. And, I, and <laughs> she would do stuff like that. Sometimes she'd be like. Fest, I want you to play the bones. And I was like, whoa, the bones, you know, I'm going to get that, you know, and, I, and it started making me think of like, you know, like you see those, 
those like rattles and stuff from you know maybe from africa or brazil where they have like the goat toenails and stuff like that mm-hmm. or the kari shells you know So, yeah, she would she would work in those kind of that kind of realm. Very impressionistic, you know. And so I got a lot out of that. And also, I, I from Abby, I gained a sincere and deep appreciation for uh, respecting the song, you know, understanding the 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 melody, understanding the story of the song. And she never chose anything that didn't fit where she was personally right then and there at that moment. And that's how she wrote, of course. So everything was deeply personal. And she lived her life like that, too. I think she, like, you could feel her heart was on her sleeve a lot of times. Like, she cared a lot. And she could be easily inspired and easily offended. And mm-hmm. in a good way, though. It was healthy because she did. She wouldn't hold back. You know, she if she felt wrong, she wasn't about to deal with it. You know, and I I, I, I watched that. And and I think she, she saw certain things, traits in me, too, that she was a wasn't was a happy to to notice and share with me so it gave me more confidence in myself you know certain aspects of like adhering to certain principles you know so i i it made me feel like okay i'm not some weird odd bird out here you know because you know how it is we can be kind of you know musicians and artists sometimes we can you know everybody's got their their flavor you know and it's, it's certain principles that i like to adhere to and um and so yeah that that is something that I, I got from working with, with Abby and it, I think it enhanced it. But years later, I remember um, after that time period, like work, when, I, when I was working with Betty, I came back and I rejoined her Jazz Ahead program because that's where she first pulled me in, actually, was the Jazz Ahead program. After hearing me at the Monk Com, she pulled me, she brought me to New York for the Jazz Ahead program. And in that first Jazz Ahead program was Greg Hutchinson, Brian Blade, Cyrus Chestnut, um, Chris Thomas, Adonis Rose, uh, Teodros Avery, Aaron Goldstein. I mean, the list just goes on. And it was yeah. like, it was insane. All these, young, yeah. we're all like kids, you know? And she brought us to New York, you know, and, and, and she developed this camaraderie that was really, I think, really wonderful and allowed us to be introduced to, to one another. I, I remember literally people there, like, I'm not going to say who it was, but this one cat, like, he just kind of disappeared because he was so in awe of the other musicians. Like, it was that kind of thing. Like, we respected each other. Like, he literally was, like, kind of, he kind of, like, collapsed for a minute. And we were, like, worried about him. And they said, no, he's just processing being around this kind of talent because we're all coming from different some of us weren't from new york we weren't around that kind of power and that kind of energy and you're spending like a week or two with her and you know day in and day out rehearsing all day long and um i kind of i kind of veered off a bit but still it, it it's oh so going back to that kind of energy like in terms of like i think being prepared and showing professionalism that's that like i think abby recognized that and later on I remember running into Betty at clubs and stuff like the second day, a year later after being in her band for that really only for like about four months. Um, 
she was kind of ticked. She was pretty like Curtis Lundy told me she was really peeved at me, you know, and and she he explained some things and it made sense the way he explained it. But I remember seeing her at Brad at Bradley's. That was one of our greatest clubs ever, I feel. And it was a bunch of us young cats that were in her jazz ahead. And so she's seated at a table with a bunch of them. And I come walking in, I sit down at the table and the, the look she shot me, bro, ma'am, Miss Barry, <laughs> the look she shot me was just like, it was like a laser just shot through me like a, a cannon. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Like, and cat, you could see it, the cats even, they, oh, J.D. Allen was too, that he was there, he was the beginning, he was the first go around. We were all like, wow. I mean, I was just like, but I was like, I remembered her lesson. Just keep smiling. So I was like, you know what? I'm here, you know? And uh, I was, I mean, I wasn't arrogant about it. I mean, I, I'm more confident now, but I still, <laughs> I, I wasn't going to leave, you know? So I just yeah. sat there and cats were like, wow. And I, and I never, I, for the longest time I was thinking, man, she really hates me. She really hates me. But years later after she had passed, and it made me remember something. There was a moment where at one of the jazz heads where I had I had a little Suzu pickup truck and I corralled every like everybody, a lot of people's equipment and put it in my truck and got us up to the Apollo. Like for the going from I think we were going from at Brooklyn over at Brooklyn, Brooklyn Academy of Music up to the Apollo. So I took all this stuff and she was watching. I remember Betty watching me. And this, so this is the second, this is this is me and mind you, after she shot me that ugly look, you know. And uh this is the second go around. And so she, you know, I'm like, wow, you know, she's like, she's giving me some dap, but at the same time, you know, I, I still had that kind of, you know, a little bit of bad water under the bridge. I had those memories in my mind. And after she passed, Aura told me, she said, yeah, when you, when you, you know, when it didn't work out, she told me, she said, he's going to be just fine. He's got his stuff together. And that, that meant a lot to me. You know, yeah. I was like, wow. Yeah. So it just goes to show you, it's like, I know sometimes people might might drug you out, but it's like until you get in their mind, you don't know everything they think about you. You know, you can't. I mean, it's it's the same way with the music, even like sometimes you might be playing somewhere and you're like, oh, my God, these people hate us. I can't they can't stand us. You know, and then afterwards they come up to you and they're giving you that. You know how it is, Darren. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and sometimes it's cultural, you know. Yeah. Like playing mm-hmm. in Sweden. <laughs> you know, sometimes people mm. are very reserved, but they're just being so attentive in terms of listening. Yeah, it's not absolutely. like, you know, it's not like playing at, you know, in Mississippi at a juke joint. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's just not going to yeah. be the same. It's just different cultural spirits. And yes, you, you're always going to play differently based upon your surroundings. But at the same time, another story about Betty, I remember playing with her in L.A. at Catalina's and it'd be like one or two people in the club. Mm. she would be throwing down that I never forgot that. That's why for me, sometimes when people say, Oh man, that audience is just killing me or, or man, they're not doing it. Or, you know, I'm like, man, I'm just thankful to be here because I watched Betty Carter do it and she didn't have but one or two people. And she gave, you know, 112,000%. Wow. You know, so. Yes. Yeah. I know Jeanette can appreciate all these stories because she, she's a phenomenal um, vocalist. Her own. Ah, okay. I think have we, so. I've seen you somewhere. Where are you, where are you performing lately? Nowhere, uh, Nowhere? lately, but okay. I know cause I moved down to Charlotte for a year and now I'm back up here. Okay. So. Welcome back. Thank you. I love your hair. 
Thank you. It's cool. Yeah. Thank we you. got this. If I had my hair, I would say it's about the same hairline. It's a beautiful <laughs> hairline. I like that. Thank you. you know, what's funny. A former boss of mine, I was getting braids. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so it was when I was I was on the road with Lauren Hill and I had Ooh. to get braids for the show for for the tour. Uh-huh. And she told the braider, she was like, don't mess up her hairline. I was like, thank you, because I yes. love my hairline. And ah. she was like, so you saying that I love my hairline. And I, I wanted to make sure I didn't look like my brother when I had short hair, but I mm-hmm. don't thank God. Amen. So, yeah. yeah. But yes, thank you. <laughs> well, I, and I'm envious of you because I, I wish I could have a hairline. So, you know, um, and I wish I could go back to those days. I still got a little residual, but it's, <laughs> not, you know, I have to keep it, keep it cut close. It, it is what it is. So, yeah. Fun ride getting here. <laughs> right, right. Man, there you go. I like that. You, I was just going to, going to kind of get, go talk about Ellis. Okay. Man, just, just because me and I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't had no idea that you studied down there with E. And yes. That you, that, you know, you had that long history with him. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, for yes, me, Ellis. I feel like he gave me my whole career, you know, he gave me my first opportunity and like, you know, so he's on my wall right now. You know, he's he real special to me. So yeah. I want to know yes. what, what it is, what it, what it was like for you kind of, you know, being around a person like, you know, like Ellis. Absolutely. I, I owe my career to him. I owe my musicianship. To, I owe my first musical experience. I grew up on the South side of Richmond. Um, my parents, you know, dad's, you know, it was chairman of the Dickin board. Mom sang on the church choir, church music and AM radio, you know, and then whatever I could find on my own. You know, I grew up in, um, on the you know South side of Richmond, but, but in the white, suburban area where all the black folks were basically congregated on a few streets, you know, in the seventies. And um, as time went by, you know, things became a little more integrated, but my experiences with the music came late, relatively late. And that was basically because of Ellis. I, um, I, in my, I want to say my, I think it was maybe my sophomore year or or junior year. So Ellis was already in town and I knew about him because we had a wonderful jazz program at VCU where I studied with a cat named Isaac Edgerton, who was one okay. of Ellis's students, mm. phenomenal drummer. And he's, he's still, I think he's still down in Richmond. I, I see him on, on Facebook and stuff. And he, he's, uh, he plays bass too. And he plays bass at his, at his church and everything. And he, he came up with James Genus, um, um, who else was there? It was, it was just, I mean, it was just out waters. It was, I mean, it's just wonderful. Steve Wilson, like just a killing band, like ridiculously amazing musicians. And I used to go check out that, that band because of Isaac, because of Isaac Edgerton, my teacher, and he was studying with Ellis. And so Isaac, when it came time, I was like, man, I, I want to be in jazz band, but I wasn't even in my high school jazz band. I, I, I was just, I was in chorus. I was in chorus and in marching band after school in my freshman year and then I think I got into a stage band or a concert band in my sophomore year. And in my, was it my sophomore? No, it was in my junior year. I still, I think I still wasn't even in um, jazz band, a jazz ensemble, but I auditioned for all county jazz band, or maybe I was in jazz too, the second tier, you know, the beginner group. And, and I auditioned in my junior year and I made it in basically because of Isaac. Like I just, I knew, I knew how to mimic, you know what I mean? Like I didn't know really 
You know what I mean? It's just like anything. It's a language, you know? So I'm watching him and he's showing me things. Not, I'm working with him on my audition. He, I knew how, okay, you play this here. I knew how to set up and kick a band, but it was in an, it's kind of abstract to me, but I knew enough to make it in. And Ellis was teaching. And at the end of that first rehearsal, Ellis looked at us and he said, at the whole band, he said, okay, at all you in here, who wants to go on to be a professional musician or study this music, you know, late after high school and college? And I raised my hand and one other cat raised his hand. His name is John Wynn. He's a really great tenor player. He's still down. His father is a wonderful tenor player too. And really read player. So that says a lot because he played the clarinet for real. You know, so this cat could handle, he took, he was taking care of business. And, and I raised my hand and it seemed like Ellis immediately, he went straight to me with all the criticism in the world. And it was the greatest thing ever. And he made me cry. He really did. I was sensitive and it was the best thing ever because he he said, so look at your drums. I had a Tama kit. I, the reason I started playing drums, watching MTV. I like Stuart Copeland. I like the police. I saw the video, Every Breath You Take. I could see, you know, when it panned behind the back of the kit. And I was like, oh, that's what he's doing. Mom, look. Can I take drum lessons? Sure. You know, so that's how I, I figured it out by looking at, you know, TV because I studied piano. My mom put me in piano early on I was always in music and um and so you know when I when I got the, the to to Isaac he showed me how to you know audition properly made it in Ellis is like man you know your drums you got this big Tama kit with the hole in the front head that big bass drum everything's all tuned low and sloppy what kind let me see your sticks you got some big two B's you know not some decent five A's you know big old fat you know rock and roll sticks he said, man, look at, listen, look at your sound. Listen to your sound, man. He said, who do you listen to? And I was like, oh, well, I have, I have some records. I have Miles Davis, four and more. So mind you, this is someone totally brand new. Okay. I have four and more because, you know, everybody says Miles Davis. And then where I grew up, everybody loved Buddy Rich. So I, I, and I also have Gene Cooper and Buddy Rich, the drum battle. And then also everyone loved Dave Brubeck. And I had Dave Brubeck, take five. Oh God! He said, and, and no <laughs> offense, but I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, you know, sometimes that's what happens in jazz education or just in different communities. <laughs> that's all you're exposed to. You're exposed to this small little mm-hmm. part of the music. And so he said, you know, the, the Dave Brubeck and, and Buddy Rich, I don't fault you on that. That's just where you grew up. And I was like, Whoa. I knew what he meant. And he said, the miles, you don't even know what you're listening to. Like, and he, he was right. Like it, I didn't realize, you know, I had never heard so what in its original form at that moment. Oh, what happened? She she, she split, but she she'll must be she'll be back. Yeah, her internet might have went out or something. Yeah, it's all good. It's cool. And so, <laughs> and she's missing the, one of the greatest stories ever. <laughs> and so, and so I'm like, I'm like, okay, wow, you know. And so he's like, you need to check out some music. And I said, well, who do I listen to? And I don't know what it was. Like, he kind of like. I don't know if I, and maybe I was putting off the wrong kind of vibe. It seemed like he pushed, he pushed away a bit. And so I'm like, how am I going to do this? You know, like I'm thinking now we're going to, we're going to rehearse again a week later or two, a week or two later. And I'm, I just bombed, you know? And so I, I decide I'm going to interview him for a thesis for one of my papers in some kind of social science class. You know, I'm thinking my thesis was, Jazz liberated the black man in America. I'm embarrassed to say it, but this is what I was going to come down there with, you know, and I came to him rolling with that foolishness. And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh. you know, I said, well, you said to me that 
you know, and I, I had managed to like, my mom took me down to Richmond. I found his address, his office. I, I don't know. I called the school. I called B, I was still in high school. I called the university and found his, his class, his, his office, went down and spoke with him. He was nice enough to even let me, you know, come in. I'm just, you know, it's not, knows kid. And so he, I said, well, you said I need to listen to some people. Who do I listen to? And he wrote this list and I can still see the handwriting. And, and I can't, I can't find, I usually I say most, I have stuff from high school, even like I have transcriptions from college. I have I, it's stuff that people have written to me, um, lessons and stuff like that, but I couldn't, I can't find this, but I can still see it. And at the top, it had Papa Joe, Philly Joe, Elvin Jones, Billy Higgins, um, James Black, Ed Blackwell. Tane, Nash, Smitty, Specs Wright, uh, Joe Chambers, you know, and the list went on and on. It was like this crazy list. Oh, and Max, of course. Max was right up there, was at the very top. And he said, you need to check these records out. You know, that's a talk. <laughs> he checked these, <laughs> check these checks out. He didn't give me records, just gave me those names. And so I went to the record store and I started, you know, it was, I was buying cassettes and I got this one of those Emerson cassettes, which is like now Verb is one of those 90 minute joints. So it had all that, a bunch of Clifford Brown, Max Roach stuff on there, you know, like, uh, and so I got that and I started listening and listening and listening. And I went back to that next rehearsal. And I just remember after like the first song, he was like, hmm. Okay, that's what I remember saying that, you know, which is good. You know, that's, you know, you're right? <laughs> he never, he wasn't going to shower you with praise. You know, he was right. always, he just had a way of pulling out the best of you and you without saying a whole lot. He could say he was so incisive. He could say just the right amount of stuff to get you where you needed to be. And so I was like, okay. And my teacher, like my, at my next lesson, he said, man, Ellis came to me and was like, where did you show him? And, and my teacher said, I didn't show him that much of anything other than, you know, he just got some records. That's it. He got some records, you know. And, I was, and so that's what I knew. I was like, okay, this is key. This is it. This is massively key. And that was only in high school. So that's in my junior year. And I got cocky, didn't make it into Oak County Jazz Band the second, my senior year, which is a, which is a great lesson. And I'm still learning these lessons sometimes, you know. And, um, and then in my freshman year, I was in this like kind of like a, a a summer program for like advanced kids. And so we had this opportunity to go to the university before school even started. And it was open to all kinds, kinds of kids. And I remember at um, <clears throat> that program, Ellis was one of the instructors and it was just basically like listening. It was like a listening class. And I just remember, and I remember the exact room. I can go right there in the basement at the, at the uh, performing arts center VCU. And I know which room it was, which would eventually become my chorus room that I would be in when I still was taking chorus all throughout college. And I just remember him putting on, so what with that intro, yep. you know, <laughs> Bill Evans and PC, you know, that famous intro. And I just remember sitting there, I was, I had my, my elbows on my knees. And I've told this story to other people, but you're going to hear it again too. And so, <laughs> I'm just sitting there and I remember those big tower speakers and Ellis was right in front of me. I was in the very front row. And I just remember like, whoa, hearing those harmonies. And I'd been in course. I was used to hearing, you know, sitting inside of harmonies and singing tenor parts. And I was like, wow. And then little little and then when you hear that and I was like oh okay and then when they go into that they launch into that swing and you hear that you hear that symbol of Jimmy Cox I just remember looking up and I was like 
And I just remember Ellis looking down, you know, hey, he get that that bottom lip. He was just like, <laughs> just smiling. And I was like, I, I just, I'm get goosebumps still thinking about it. And I yeah. knew right then it was like the bug had really hit then. And I, and so I'm, man, Ellis. And then being in his rhythm section masterclass, he introduced me to the music of Amon Jamal, you know, <clears throat> Vernell Fournier. The Poinciana grooves, like those those records, man, which are just which I, and I'm sitting here like I was getting ready to <laughs> that box oh, set. Say, like oh that, wow, okay, yeah, this oh, mosaic my... box set that Kenny Washington did the liner notes on. Yep, this is that absolutely. how much more complete how much more trio Argo sessions 1956 to 62, and uh, <laughs> the sound on there is ridiculous too. And I'm an audiophile, so I, I love that. But um, yeah, and th- those records, man, all those grooves, and you see how like the drums can be so compositional you know it's like the shapes that that Vernell, how he would delineate the different sections of the song and his sparseness and how how you know how effective he was with being such so, being so groovy understanding color understanding texture and then not having to shout you yes know? when he yep. needed to he could he could holler when he needed to but it was also that it was coming from this 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 controlled environment, this, you know, this lower level playing. And I remember hearing him play at Bradley's and I was just blown away. Like it was crazy how, how dark Vernell's drums were like his tuning was really low. Really? By the, yeah. By the time I heard him in the, in the nineties at Bradley's playing trio and I don't even remember who else was playing. It's like, it was that powerful. I can't remember who else was playing. It was just, it was like, wow. Like it had that, it was low and, you know, it was like, low and earthy kind of like mel lewis but even lower than that wow. even like like almost sloppy like in terms wow. of the tuning i'm saying right right his playing was still you know crisp it was crisp yeah right. yeah but it was that dark <laughs> low kind of thing you know it sounded like yeah. like sometimes i like i like to compare tuning to to different like cultures of like of, of our diaspora you know so like when i hear that high sound i start thinking okay that's you know some max you'd be thinking about that high pitch on the djembe something you know mandinka right. you know that kind of thing and then you hear like like Ghanaian Yoruba stuff, like some of those drums, they have that lower kind of sound, you know, but yep. his sound was even lower, like just like, it was wet. It sounded very wet, but it was, but it was also really warm sounding, you know? Yeah. And, um, but yeah, just getting introduced to those kind of, those kind of traditions in the music and, and that kind of understanding. I, I don't know where I would be without, without Ellis. I mean, he really, yeah. And Ellis, my one of my first. Welcome back, Jeanette. How you doing? Thanks. I'm sorry, sorry. Ellis. No, that's all yeah. right. I was like, what did I say? <laughs> He's like, Girl, this fool on here. Let me get off. But anyway, but uh, yeah, it, you know, he Ellis. I remember my first ever gig, my first ever professional gig. I was playing. Um, I was playing with this cat, Anthony Dowd in Richmond, Virginia. That was my first ever gig. And Clarence had already been, I think, playing with him. But it was kind of like the big premiere gig in Richmond. You know, it's it, but it was a tiny pond. It's not, you know, it's Richmond. But it was, but there was still some phenomenal players there, like Joe Kennedy Jr., Clarence C. Uh, there was really wonderful. And we had, and we had the school too. We had the residual of that. Uh, this cat James Gates, who I learned a lot from. Um, but and I, I feel like I need to name all the teachers, but maybe I'll do that later. <laughs> but anyway, so I I go I go in, in into this gig, and I'm like, man, I also get a call, I get a, an ask from Ellis to play with Milt Hinton that same night. Wow! And so my first professional gig, I did a concert with Milt Hinton with That's Ellis crazy. in the first like the first half of the concert. I'm playing drums, and then I scoot off to my first ever gig 
you know, freshman year, this is like literally in October, my freshman wow. year of college. And so I'm playing with like an adult, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> playing with the, the adult. And then one of our premier local adults, you know, and it's in this wonderful trio with this catch, uh, um, Jim Branch is a wonderful singer and he sang all these standards coming out of like a, um, like a Johnny Hartman kind of vibe. So mm. that, oof, you know, when you're young and you get exposed to that, that's precious, yeah. um, you know? So I was like, you know, oh my God, these ballads and stuff, you know, and you're in there playing and you're, and it's kind of like upper echelon, you know, it's environment, you know, but it's still got some, some grease on it. But then at the same time, the, the pianist, he loved a lot of Keith Jarrett. So it's like, you'd be going out of the, into the loose thing and then you'd be coming back to the more down home kind of thing. And I played with Ellis that night. <laughs> you know? So it was like really exciting to me. And I got to tell you a story though, but Jason was there at that time too. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so little Jason at the age of 12 or 13, did you ever hear him back then? Jason I, Marcellus, when he was really young, you know about his playing? I, when I never, you know, I never heard Jason yeah. super, super young, but. Jason is is, <laughs> is is a genius. And I know that Wenton has said that. And, and um. And I, I know he is because this kid, <laughs> he sounded just like Tane when he was 12. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. No, I, and but, I'm not kidding you. I am I'm, not it, kidding it, you. It doesn't surprise me because it was, you know, but <laughs> this little dude, I, I remember. So he played the second half of the concert. So we do our little rehearsal, and I'm a college, you know, I'm a freshman, but still, I'm in college. And this is my first introduction to this kid. I, I come into the theater for the rehearsal. And I'm on the bandstand. I'm, you know, I, I know that. I know because I think Ellis had introduced me. Yeah, he introduced me to him. And he was sleeping in the in the chairs. He's like, uh, you know. right. he's laying there the whole time like this. And he's probably disgusted. Probably that's what was going on. <laughs> no, and he's no, like, no, 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 trust me. No, I'm not going to lie. Tr- trust me. I was green, man. Ellis was giving me a chance. Jason came up in that stuff, you know. I'm going to give props where props are too. And so he's just like, you know. And he gets up. Now he's okay, Jason. Come on up, Jason. Play your song. She's like, playing all that stuff. It's just like, I'm like, oh my God. He's catching all the cat. He's playing the melody. He knows where the tune is. And he's and he's modul- metric modulation and stuff. He's playing yeah. a ton of tame. And it's really insane. I'm like, it's it's almost like, you know, you feel a little dejected when you're yeah. a 12-year-old playing like that. Right. But yeah. it was real though. It was real. Yeah. You know, so I did my best. You know, I had a I had a good time playing with with Mr. Hinton. I remember Mr. Hinton saying his his, his old line. It's like, I got I got shoes older than this this one on the drums here. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I had a great time playing with him. He was so supportive and and you know playing with that kind of that kind of swing and that kind of depth and that that's that vibe. It's like, and I'm not gonna call that old school. People say, oh, it's old school. It's like whatever. Nah, that's real. That's here and now because that's part of the tradition. Absolutely. And it's and that tradition is alive and well when you treat it right. Yeah. When you come at it with that kind of vibe where it's like you are so committed to playing it that it, you know, it don't matter what age it is or what's coming what what time period it is. If you play that mess right, you're gonna resonate and you're Absolutely. gonna resonate with people. Absolutely. And so that's the thing. When you play with someone like Mill Hinton, you understand, do not, do not think that that stuff is light. Do not, you <laughs> right. know what I mean? And so um, I just remember the review afterwards said that, you know, that, you know, it was okay, but that, that the, 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 when the second half of the concert, I'm paraphrasing, when the second half <laughs> came about and the young Jason Marsalis was on the drums, then everything came to life. So something <laughs> to that effect. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, cool, you know, it is, you know, you take it as a lesson, man. There's always someone out there that, you know, 
that you can that you can learn from you know can school you you know and uh, and I and it's funny because I a few years ago I played with Delphio. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I can never get it right. You know, but yeah, that, you got Jason, it right. <laughs> yeah. And Jason was on vibes. And oh, so yeah. I'm playing wow. drums for, for Jason and Delphio. So that was a, oh, that was cool. a lot of fun. And he was and Jason gave me some pointers and some stuff, you know, like some like some press roll kind of things, you know, like that. You know, like I do it a little different. Like he manages to get he managed to get more strokes into it. I tend to, I tend to cheat. Like I'm coming from more of like right hand is controlling the, the quarter and the, and just let the left hand drop where he's playing a full, like, like seven stroke, you know, he's starting on the left and then on the right or something. I'm like, wow, that's clean, you know? But I mean, those, those cats from new Orleans, man, they know some drums, you know, <laughs> they know some drums, they know some, some history. And it's, and it's a, and it's a, it's a, the way that it's taught too. You know, when you, when you look at those videos and, you know, like looking at Herlin and he's talking about learning from what is it, his uncle and grandfather at the table, you know, like playing with knives and forks. That's I mean, that that's how we learned it. That's how we used to learn it. You know, that's culture. You know, and so th- those are the kind of things when you see how someone has excelled and you like because when I, I also studied with Max and I knew Max, he loved he was always talking about Papa Joe. So it taught me like this is Max Roach, but he was always going back. To, to talking about Papa Joe and those cats and Big Sid. And so it, it, it taught me that if you want to be as, try to be as great as someone like a Max Roach, you got to check out who they checked out. Yep. Back. You know, it's gotta not about back. just starting there. You got to go, you got to go further back. And it's yep. not to say that you need to sound like someone further back. You just need to check them out and understand how Max Roach came to be, you know? And then when you check out Papa Joe, you know, you start to understand it's like, wow, listen to all that 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 footwork you know he's, he's like that's some some tap dance stuff and then when you listen to his record the drums you understand <clears throat> he was into tap dancers you know that famous record of his who martin williams gave me a copy of of that record he was a the cat who wrote the liner notes to uh shape of jazz to come he was teaching at one of the camps i studied at with a study at with max roach it was gunter schuler's special with sandpoint he was a cat that introduced me to that album, the drums. He gave me a oh, copy wow. of it on cassette. Like you know that record, right, Darian? Yeah. It's yep. it's yeah, it's phenomenal. And he's talking about all these different drummers, tap dancers, cats on vaudeville that you never heard about. It shows you it's like how much history he had ingested. And remember, those cats were so smart, you know. And he was able to play back their different styles and all that kind of stuff. And it made you realize it's like he didn't just. And like he says, nothing new under the sun. He didn't just drop out of the sky fully formed. He, he, it all rubbed off on him. He was taking it in. He was listening to cats and studying them and, and figuring out what they were doing and trying. And yeah, you try to imitate, you know, but you imitate so that you, you, that you can assimilate and then bring it into your own, you know? Yeah, man, look, you you said so much just now, man, you know, (laughs) we got to hang out so we can really get to to the, I know, man, I always say we don't hang enough, man. Yeah. (laughs) To the Ellis, I'm. A, I'm. A, I know Jeanette's got something for you though. So, as a vocalist, uh, mm-hmm. I have a few drummers that I love that I call all the time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what would you tell other vocalists working with these powerhouses of of the voice? What would you tell, and it, not just age, but just any vocalist from what you have learned, anything about the business, music, whatever? Because mm-hmm. I think it's nice to hear from a non-vocalist who's worked with so many, mm-hmm. the other, so, a different perspective of such. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, 
you know, having your sound together is, is always, I think, the most most important thing for me. Like, and that's talking with people like Benny Golson, but just, but not. I never really talked in that much about sound per se. I think with Betty or Abby, but I remember Betty saying that one of the the most incredible things about Billy, and I'm not sure if it, if this maybe you can verify this true, is that Billy kept her keys basically the same, and as her voice changed, she managed to make it fit. So that's some ingenious stuff. But one of the most powerful things that I remember hearing, it was one thing from Abby, and I refer back to what I said earlier, was that you pick songs based upon your personal experiences. Like there are certain standards at certain times in your life that are not age appropriate. Yeah. I think that's that's important. I remember one time going to one of our clubs where a lot of our you know fellow young musicians hang out, and I heard a, a singer that could have it's maybe 2021 singing here's to life (laughs) and it didn't it just did not feel sincere it was it was it did not feel sincere um i've heard and i've had you know chances to work with singers that were doing that had a sound like someone or they did they had so much of someone else that they had lost themselves Mm. i think that's important to to Yes, you have your heroes and yeah, you might want to try to to cop a lot of their things, but you still got to have something of your own in there. Because to me, it just it also feels I feel also it feels a little disrespectful to go on a bandstand and do those kind of things. You know, like there are a lot of parallels between us as instrumentalists and as sing and singers, because the singers, your voice is your instrument. Mm -hmm. I think that with it being so personal, because there's no other instrument that where it's like your flesh and blood is the only thing that's putting that sound out there. That's yep. why singers tend to be, I think they have to be a little bit crazy because <laughs> you're putting, Fair. you're Fair. putting, <laughs> you're putting such a personal thing. I mean, I don't, I don't want to stereotype. I mean, I'm, it's a, it's a bit of a joke, but there's something about that, um, that kind of personal kind of thing. It takes so much to get up on a bandstand or perform a stage or theater or whatever, and put that out there and then be critiqued. You know, because, you know, you're going to feel that. I I mean, I feel it sometimes. That's why I, I've learned. I take some of the principles when I used to work in an African dance company was that you are present, but you don't you don't give yourself over to the audience so much that you become um, um, a slave to their feelings. You know, and that kind of goes back to how Betty would just give it no matter what. Like we were taught, you do not make eye contact while you're performing with the audience, which is kind of like some people say you should be making eye contact. But I have learned that and this also goes back to like you know you look at that one person that's got the sourpuss face and you're like what you know and it can take you out of your vibe so, <laughs> so true. i can i can look through or i can look around but i tend to try to focus on what's going on in the bandstand mm-hmm. um i don't mean to digress too much but but that that personal kind of um sound is really important picking out songs i think that that you really understand that really mean a lot to you i think you will it, it also you'll resonate more too because it's then it's not like you're you know i know like like one of the things and, and curtis put it into great words like betty really understood drama she really understood the drama of the music because these are story tales you know these are it's like scenarios it's like scenes in a movie or stage play that you're painting with these these stories and and oftentimes what you're doing is you're allowing people to live vicariously through your your emotion that you're putting out they can feel oh i remember that time or or maybe i one day i'll be there like that or that kind of love or i oh that's you know like 
all that they loved and then they lost, you know, that kind of thing, (laughs) Mm -hmm. all those kind of feelings. So I think it's, it's important to pick out songs that, you know, have that kind of, you know, that kind of um, personal aspect to them, to it, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying you can't do every, you know, I mean, you can't just, it's just, you just have to be careful and mindful of it. Like, like I said, when I hear certain people doing certain things at the wrong time, it just doesn't, it just doesn't feel sincere and you can hear it, you know, it's, you know, some people and some people have um, lived and learned earlier, and that's cool. That's yeah. true. You yeah. Know, some some people that's, lived and learned much much later or never. Yeah. That's why when you hear somebody like Johnny O'Neill, yeah, it's like everything he sings, you believe it and feel it. Yes. yes. <laughs> you be yes. crying. You're like, why Absolutely. am I crying right now? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That's real. You know? Yeah. My yeah. my mother told me from a very young age because uh, she's a singer, and she said, you know. Sing for your age, sing for your, you know, your place in the world. Don't yeah. be up here 16 years old trying to sing Lush Life. You don't know mm-hmm. what that means. Like, right. unless you're a drunk, but you don't, you're not. And <laughs> yeah. you don't, yeah. so you don't know what that means. Yeah. And that's, it's really important. Yeah. I think that might be one of the reasons why Billie Holiday is so powerful that at a young age, she had already lived quite a lot, you know, whether, whether it be, I mean, we got a lot of beauty from, from her struggles, you know? struggles from her her joy and sadness you know and you hear that in her songs you know it's so personal it's like that because she i mean she went through it i think that abby too you know she like one of the lyrics on one of her songs is a song i played on and it's with uh that's james that's james hurt on that record with uh on that song at least and um and it's Bobby Hutchison also on that and, and Michael Blue. It's a song called And It's Supposed to Be Love. And the first, <gasps> yes. Yeah, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> that first, yeah. That first line, you know, body slam your partner to the ground. Mm. I'm like, what? Like it's a <laughs> and it's a joyous, it's a, it's a it's so it's like a traditional sounding, like you know, calypso kind of sound, that kind of thing. That's and that's one of the things about the black experience. Oftentimes there's there's this. The veneer of joy on it, the music, and there's a there's a dark or sad or there's a struggle being told in the storyline of it. That's just who we are, you know. And it, they need to be a part of that to play on that. Like when I, and I was young, you know, and I'm hearing those lyrics and I'm thinking, whoa, you know. And she's been through it. She had been through it, you know. She had, I think she had her struggles, you know. She she alluded to certain things with me about, you know, her past, you know, and I. I don't want to get into it because I think it would be too much speculation, but I, I mean, I feel in my heart of hearts, I understand where she's coming from, but I, I, I don't go, you know, totally public with it, you know I mean? You know, yeah. And, um, and I, I just remember that, you know, and, you know, that lyric, and it's supposed to be love and it's supposed to be love, you know? So like, wow. This is kind and of lead, leading me into to my next thought. And mm-hmm. I, I do want to ask you this because as we we're, going through this pandemic and, you know, all of us had our whole livelihood shut down, which to me seemed to be impossible (laughs) before this Mm -hmm. past year. Like, how do you embrace like the idea of perseverance, you know, also like the idea of like rebuilding and starting something new because Mm -hmm. you can't, you can never do what was, you had already been done, especially when you have to stop so abruptly, you have to Mm -hmm. do something. Like, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. Well, uh, I got to give <laughs> praise to the Lord God Almighty, <laughs> you know, just to having that strength and my wife, you know, there's a, there's a, I teach at, ja- at uh, Jazz for Teens, also teach Jazz House Kids and 
I'm not digressing. Just give me a second here. But <laughs> <laughs> take your time, brother. Take yes, your time. yeah. You know how right. I do. I like to, you know, it's gonna be like a good solo. You've got, you've got an exposition, and then you know, you to start developing your theme and, and the Daniel Mont, all that kind of stuff, you know. And uh, but Valeri Panamarev, he he's one of the fellow teachers there, you know, and he played with with Buhena, with Art Blakey, and he had this wonderful sheet. Like you were all online, of course, but he put up a, a PDF, and and one of the statements was. Um, you know the measure of a man by looking at his wife, mm. regarding his wife, you know, and it's like, whatever, it'd be your spouse, however, you know, whatever. It's a, it's a different world, liberal and everything. I'm cool with that. It might be your, your significant other, whatever, but you can see who you partner with. And that tells you something about who that person is, you know? And I got to say, it made me feel really good when I, when I read that, because I mean, that being together made it a whole lot easier. It was, it was scary, of course, but being together, um, you know, she's a musician too. And that, that of course helps, but that made it easier. And it also gave, it gave me a lot of time to process and think about the future and different ways of approaching things. And then with her being called upon to do certain things, you know, I was being brought into it. So I developed other skills or I further developed other skills around production, things like that in terms of recording myself recording her, recording us, recording her band, even doing the video stuff, that little video, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but that's something that I recorded in the crib. Yeah, I, yeah, I did the audio engineering, mixing, mastering, the video in, in stuff, all of that. And it's kind of like, it's given me a new set of skills because it's like, sometimes she's like, this promoter saying they can't, they can't bring the band in. But if we were able to do a video, they would, they would give us, you know, it's like a, not the original fee, of course, but still that's some income. And it came that came through, it's come through multiple times throughout this. It's really, it's been helpful. Now, of course, you know, it's not what we would normally be making, but that I'm blessed in that regard to to have, you know, I mean, she's a genius. I'm gonna say it. <laughs> so to be partnered with a genius like that, you know. And um that's one that's been wonderful. Um, going forward, it has made me look at more like being more independent because of that, mm. not, not being so dependent upon other things. And, you know, I've, I've, I've made like that stuff that I submitted is stuff that I have yet to release. And that's, that's my fault, but I've been recording and I made some, made a phone call and I'll have a gig coming up at Soapbox Gallery next month. So I'm oh, excited. Nice. I like Jeanette said, she's like, Oh, look at you. Mister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so happy, so happy oh, for you. you. Yeah, a trio with um with Marvin Sewell and Chris Lycap. So oh, going yeah. forward, I, I see that, you know, and you look at you can see people in our in our in our world, in our business world, that you know, they pull strings, they make things happen because they they get out here and they hustle. You know, it's like I'm, I'm, it's making me see that more. Um it's also made me value connections more, like in terms of like just saying hello to people. You know what I mean? It's like I'm I'm nice enough, but still. If you're not like even just reaching out on the phone here and there, that that can kind of diminish your um, your your position, you know, because if you if you, and yeah, we couldn't hang out in the clubs like we used to. We couldn't, you know, that whole like, you know, unseen, you know, out of out of mind, out of uh, I mean, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing really could be a problem. And sure, there's a but at the same time, you have stuff online. But then it was like a gazillion of those things. It was left and right. It was stuff everywhere all, until until a point where. That also, too, like, I think you have to, you, I mean, you know your lane, and some people will really thrive on that, but 
there's also for a certain kind of musician where it can begin to diminish, I think, their value when it's so much, so much over and over and over and over again. Um, I remember Betty talking about that, like, you know, playing in certain places, like if you do it too many times, like she talked about some of the, some mm. of the young lions that were really hot at one moment. She said they kept on going back to the same clubs too many times and then people got tired of them. They came back too, too often, too, too soon. You know, it's like, it's, there's a way to, you have to kind of dole it out. Yeah, it takes perseverance and you, and you got to be strong and you, and yeah, maybe you need some other kind of, you have, have to have other things in the pot ready to go because yeah, we need to, we want to work. We, and we, and we love to perform. That's, that's our greatest strength and our biggest weakness is right. wanting to do it. We like to do it. And sometimes it gets to the point where you're giving it away yeah. and that's where it becomes dangerous. I think, you know, Absolutely. so that's some of the things I, I think that, you know, that's made it even, I think, even more clear. You know, sometimes you just say, yeah, I understand we're in this situation, but right now I can't do that. You know, it's like, I'm going to, you know, and, and thank goodness for teaching. I have those kind of things also that help out a little bit here and there. And I'm very, very thankful for that. And it's, but that's also made me a stronger musician because, you know, having to explain it to other people, it's made me like, oh, okay, you got to have your stuff together. And now doing it on Zoom, it's not like, I mean, I'm a good improviser, you know, but in Zoom, you got to be, you got to have your stuff lined up. You got to have your folders ready. You got to have your PDFs ready. You got to have your MP3s ready. You know, you got to have your sounds, all that stuff. So you can present properly to the kids, you know, and I'll spin on the dime. Yeah. I'll, I'll, if I see something else is, is we're flowing in a different direction, I'll do that. If I know I'm where I need to be with this young person, then I'll go with that. And I'll be like, okay, let me look at my library. Oh, let me, let me get this YouTube thing up, oh, you know, but I have these things in my memory bank where I know I can, I can make it happen quickly enough. But at the same time, I, I've learned a lot from preparation. And I think this is what COVID is teaching us all. Say, like, prepare, look further down the road, understand the ramifications of what you're doing. Not, not everybody's going to see that, but that's how I see it. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. I love that. I love that. Another thing about sound though, I remember, um, Betty said some, some, some heavy stuff to me. And she said that a lot of the singers today have become inundated with R and B and gospel that they, they, they don't know how to fit inside of like this genre, the way, like the way she hears it, at least, you know? So I never forgot that because you know, when you've gone somewhere and you hear someone singing and it's like, there used to be this show called star search, you know, where you, where you get to do the loops and the hoops and hollers and all the circles and curly cues and everything. And that's what <laughs> we get, you know, the general kind of public excited. And I understand yeah, play for the people and that's, that's there, but there's still an artistry to doing that. Like cannonball was a prime example. He knew how to play for the people. You know, he was scientific about it. Um, Earl, um, Earl McIntyre, wonderful trombonist who, you know, he played a, a lot with just all these great people, the, the Mingus big band, you know, just a phenomenal musician. He said the, the way he story he heard was that that Cannonball, he he took a scientific approach to building his band and building his how, what how he's going to approach the music. He went around and all like the joints and the black clubs and he started finding out what people were listening to, what they were checking out. And he decided to use those elements in his you know, jazz and his music, you know, whatever we want to call it, you know, great, you know, great American music or black music, black American music, you know, and that's another thing. I know Abby hated that word jazz too. You know, mm, she, did, yeah. Yeah, she did not like that, that word. Um, but, but those kind of, that kind of like understanding, and, and it makes me think about some of these, like, you know, 
rap artists, you know, and R&B cats, they they go out, they go out in the clubs. They understand what's going on. Oh, absolutely. And they go to some of the, you know, they go to some of the spots that are, you know, kind of gutter too. Yeah. <laughs> and they find these kind of things and then they find a way to make it, you know, palatable or, or present it to the people. Now, what you choose to do with it in terms of, is it going to be uplifting or not? That's on you. Right. you know, so. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. Look, it's important look. to be to uplift. Yeah, absolutely. We uh we we hitting we hitting time, man. Wow, I, <laughs> that was fast. Okay, it's, cool. Yeah, it it was. It's, it's, it's a quick one. All right. Um, but check this out. Before we go, man, I definitely want to give you an opportunity to tell the people where they can connect with you. They can buy your merch, your records. Okay. Yeah, uh, well, there's there's no records out yet. To be honest, there are no records out. The stuff that you have is is a sneak peek. So what what you got right there? Please don't don't give it away. Oh, I won't give it away. <laughs> none of that. None of that. I, I hope you enjoyed it. it. Hope you enjoyed looking at the. Did you? you it seems like Jeanette looked at the video. Cool. Yeah, we yeah it. we 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 checked yeah. it out. I didn't realize. Yeah. So so the stuff you sent us is not released. Maybe we should play one it's, thing. Right? Maybe we should. If it's cool, we can play. Uh, we can play a little snippet of something real quick. Sure. Yeah. Like, okay. I like yeah, the, this the, one. The, the three MP3s are. Um, those are all originals of mine. Those are all songs. Oh, lovely. My my favorite and, one is is Lost Lullaby. Can we listen to that one? Is yeah, that man, hit it. I love yeah. That's what that's a song that Cyrus used to play. It was, it was called a different name back in the 90s, but he used to play that as a solo piece when I was working in Cyrus Chestnut's trio in the 90s. And it's actually it's on one of his Atlantic recording sessions, sitting in a vault somewhere. Wow. But I renamed it. It's an it's another name now. It's I called see. Lost Lullaby because for a minute there I lost that chart. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you move. You know, you got stuff in boxes, yep. you know. Yeah. Oh, I know all about that. Cool. All right, so yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. play it right now. Lost Solid. Xavier Davis on piano. Chris Berger on bass.
Wow, man. So yeah. Y'all some, y'all some... <laughs> We're getting in it, right? Hey. Yeah. yeah that, the last eight bars I wrote on the chart, I said Splash Grease, and, and clearly Xavier did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Because it's just oscillated man. between two dominant chords in the last eight bars. It's just like, it's a really simple song. It's not that many changes to it, but it's, you know, it just feels like it's it's something I could sing, and that's how I wrote it. I was sitting at the piano, and uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah, he... Xavier is another one of those Betty Carter cats, and you can hear that. And then, you know, he came through her band, and he played with Abby. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Matt, was that you recorded that at your at your crib, or you guys? That, not that one. No, that okay, was done okay. at Tedesco Studios. That was done in in um, two thousand in two thousand thirteen. Okay, wow. It's that old. Wow. Yeah, it was at Tedesco Studios, but um, that no, I didn't. I didn't have anything to do with the mixing. I mean, I was there for the mixing and mastering, right? And um, I did make certain choices, like being an audiophile, I've seen the, the loudness wars come along where everything gets louder and louder. And I said, no, nah, can we back it down? Because we're it started, it was sounding bland, like just because every a lot of records to me sound bland simply because the dynamics have been squashed. I, you know, and so I said, back down the volume so that I can hear the peaks and valleys. Like you can hear it, like I get explosive towards the end, you know, and it, it jumps out because it starts at kind of a softer level. Exactly. No, I appreciate that. <laughs> I it's so nice to hear a trio number one, um, because like you said, like just the sound, it feels so intimate yet, like very powerful. But also, I know I, we didn't speak about your history as far as dance goes, but like dancing and and playing drums, and you really sounded like what to me Gregory Hines dances like oh thank you i'm honored like as i, I was listening honored. it felt so graceful oh, thank you that's my like, goal yeah, yeah it was it was stunning like i could see yeah. like i could picture gregory hines like that that felt like that like it did feel like somebody dancing on it and i love that because so often you've got drummers that like just stay in the pocket and that's mm-hmm. it which is great like mm-hmm. it's wonderful yeah, yeah. There's, there's totally moments for that mm-hmm. but it's so nice to hear somebody that can that can dance and still stay with it and still mm-hmm. be the back but yet still forward it was thank you yeah oh that means so much because that's exactly i mean you put in better words than i could that's that's what i i mean i love dancers i love the gracefulness of that and working early on with Cyrus, like it taught me a lot about that. Working with, working with him, working with Betty with him, mm. like you know that was this. That's like to me is the epitome of elegance is Betty's rhythm sections, Jerry Allen, you know Cyrus, and um, that and Xavier. It's just something about and that piano sound. You know what when it's right, and that inspires me to play a certain way. And it's just that dancing sensibility that I always try to get to. Now, that kind of approach doesn't work with every group, though, you know, so I know it's a time and place for everything. And um, I knew with this song, that's why I wrote it like that, you know, because it gives me that chance to do that. But Thank you, because I love me some tap dancers, and I played on Shuffle Along. I worked. That's what I was was just going to bring that up, because I don't know if you remember this, but Henry Connerway hooked us up for Shuffle Along. I came and and I checked you out, and I was going to sub, possibly... You came into the pit, right? You did, did you watch yeah. in the pit? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, I, I watched I you in the pit, and I was yeah. telling I was telling Jeanette before we before you came on, and I was like, "Oh shit, man! Uh, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I told I called Henry. I was like, Henry, man, you know, uh, this cat is on another level, and I've never played a Broadway show. I was like, bro, the, the amount, the the perfection that you played that show with, 
uh, was beautiful. Like I've never you. seen, and you know, I've seen other cats play shows. Mm-hmm. What you did, I, uh-huh. man, I don't know if they got recordings, but this, this, it was a masterclass. It was beautiful, man. Because you, you understood <sighs> you, the entirety of the music and you have to, to play a show like that. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, and up until that point, coming from New Orleans, I had never heard someone play like music from the early, like from the beginning of jazz mm. so accurately. That's, like, I mean, that, I was like, oh shit. Like, I, man, I'm honest. What y'all are, y'all are stroking my ego too much here now. My, no, my no, wife's gonna make, she ain't gonna be able to handle me tonight. I'm walking around <laughs> so big, be bumping into the door frame. <laughs> no, really, man. Cause I, I, cause you know, I was like, wow, man, this cat really like studied Dodds and, you know, like, like, you know, Papa Joe. Like, you really, yep. And Those you had the, yeah. the bells and the, the wood yep. blocks. I was like, yo, this is crazy. <laughs> I got was, videos was, of that. I've been meaning to put them up, man. I have so much stuff. I'm not like, I mean, I, I sometimes I have these spurts where I put things up, you know, on, on social media, but I'm not right. like a hardcore social media hog. Like it's fun. But then it's sometimes I'm like, man, it just, I'd rather be practicing. You know what I mean? <laughs> so one day I'll put some of that stuff up because I have some videos. I looked at it. It scared me even like looking at it years later. I was like, what? You know, because you get so deep into the music. But that's a, I learned a lesson talking to one of the old heads that was a drummer. And I met him one day at the theater. He was just hanging out on the street. And they, I forget this gentleman's name. What's this cat's name? But he told me, I was saying, man, yeah, it's the show is, the drum book is really hard. But I was the one that kind of like, I basically worked on those parts with, with, with uh, Save Young Glover. So <laughs> I was listening. I was following um, Daryl Waters. Um, instruction about, okay, I want this here, I want that there. But then he just gave me free reign to fill in all the, the, like there's certain key things, you know? And of course I hear, okay, I need this. And then it's like, I'm looking at the dancers. So I had rehearsed with the dancers for eight months prior to the show even starting, rehearsing with the rest of the band. So I knew the stuff in and I have like, I have like in that cabinet, I have a, this big thick folder transcriptions that I did during the, um, the dance, the, 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 the shedding sessions when, when Sajan was developing it. So, and he'd come in almost every other day and change stuff. So I'd be, you could see so much stuff I marked out. And I'd be like, okay, they're doing this, you know, it was like, I mean, it's foot percussion, you know? So I was trying to interpret that on, on the drum set in relation to what I'm hearing and seeing because there's other little cues, like people dropping things, throwing a hat or whatever, punching someone, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 That, that was, man, listen. If you got, you need to be traveling the country giving master classes just on that. <laughs> like that, somebody, you got a doctorate in whatever that is, man. You know, well, right. I'll, I'll carry your drums, man. Just let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a good point, man, because it, it's it's a science and an art at the same time. And I, that's yeah. why I love Papa Joe, because I, you know, I used to, like, when I heard that record, he was talking about the different tap dancers and then looking at videos of those cats back in the day and seeing like that one with, with Jimmy Slide, you know, that, that video with Jimmy Slide. And see, Savion hit me to the fact that Jimmy Slide, Roy Haynes used to hang out a lot with Jimmy Slide. Wow. See, that starts things start to fit together when you talk to that's why your discipline, you can't just be, I'm just gonna do this. No, you it's all over. Talk to artists, talk to the dancers, talk to the singers. Then you learn more about what 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 makes you what makes it what they do special, you know, what all, all we're doing is special. And so I was like, ah, you know, and you can hear clearly Roy Haynes, he loves some Papa Joe. You know, he understand. He under. He's got the humor. He's got the drama. He's got the excitement. He's got the sadness. He's got the anger. He's got the joy. All that stuff is in what we do. You know, and then sometimes there is, you know, ah, that fire. You know, all those kind of things. You know, I remember going 
to the Vanguard. And I remember hearing Roy Haynes sitting right down front. A friend of mine, her name is Crystal Simpkins. We went to, we went, we were in college together. She's a dancer. And she, when she came up to the city, I took her out to hear Roy Haynes and she fell in love with Roy Haynes. This is back in the 90s. She said, I want to marry him. I was like, <laughs> wow. And I believe it. And we sat right down front and and we and when we were going, I was taking her back to her apartment. We were coming across the Brooklyn Bridge, and I had Miles in the Sky on, you know mm-hmm. that record. And Tony is just shredding, and and it dawned on me. I was like, "This is Roy Haynes." <laughs> I was like, "This is a ton of Roy Haynes here." Like, because after sitting there for two sets, you know, hearing him at the Vanguard on the front row with our feet on the edge of the stage, you know, no, not not rudely, but, you know, when he wasn't playing, at least, you know, we were that close and we were sitting right in front of his bass drum and she looked, we both looked like I put it on. She both looked at each other. I almost, I didn't crash, but I was just like, she looked, I remember her. She's like, this, this guy, he's, he's, the, this drummer's listened to Drew Haynes. And I said, yeah, that's Tony Williams. And I was like, wow. And I remember talking to, to his son years later. And um, he was saying, I told him, I said, man, I heard this. And my friend, she's a dancer. She heard it too. You know, he said, yeah, I tell you one time I was at a, at a Tony gig hanging out backstage and I was talking to him, you know, Tony could be really quiet and kind of standoffish, you know? <laughs> and so he didn't say that much to anybody. He didn't really know that well. And so he said, um, yeah. Um, and later on he said, yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm um, Roy Haynes' son. And Tony just lit up. He said, Why do you tell me that, man? That was the cat. The, he was the last drummer I really checked out. I spent a year studying him. And I was like, golly, man. That's why it's so cool to have these different conversations. And you start to see like all these little pieces fit together to the puzzle. And it's just fascinating. It's like Tony Williams. I mean, he's one of our greatest, you know, it's like, you know, and he listened to so much, so much music, you know, and you, you, there's that really great uh, masterclass where someone says, how'd you come about with just such an original sound? He says, oh, I didn't see myself as being that original. I just took a bunch of different drummers things and I put them together in my own kind of way. Like that's like as bad of a dude as he was. And he knew he was a bad dude. He still had that kind of humility. That's what's really powerful because some people could, you could come across, I think for some as being like kind of cocky, but he still had a ton of humility, man. Those cats, like that's the dichotomy of those different personalities. Sometimes it's not everything you think it is. Until so you, you start digging deep, you're like, Whoa. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Alvesta, man, I, I hate this, but we have to, we got to wrap it up. But I love it, man. Thank you, brothers man. and sisters. Yeah, this is wonderful. I really appreciate it. It's amazing. It. Oh, man. Thank, thank, you, man. thank you so much for blessing us with all of this knowledge and the stories. It's, oh, you know, man. Thank you for doing what you do. You're blessing the scene. Thank you for anybody's out here uplifting each other. I love it. Much, much mad respect to you, you both and your pro and your whole program. You know, the, the the Working Artist Project is just amazing. Second Line Arts Collective. This is phenomenal. I'm so excited that you're doing something like that. I, I'm in awe of you guys because this oh, is man. I know this is this takes organization. That's not easy. <laughs> man. Yeah, I think this is episode 111. So get out of uh, here. Yeah, wow. so the folks well, got it going on. And one of the heaviest, I I do want to leave you with one quote. One of the heaviest quotes I ever remember Abby saying was, if you practice unorganization off the bandstand, you bring that same unorganization to the bandstand with you. Uh Uh-oh. See, with that, look. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) For my whole life. Right? Let me get my life together. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you so much. My name is Darian Douglas. And I'm Jeanette Barry. And we'll catch y'all next time. Later. Later.